We are in Colossians this morning. Anybody getting tired of going through Paul's letters? If you can, you can, you can just leave. Okay, you can leave right now. <clears throat> so we're in Colossians. I love this book. Uh, I'm not a big fan of um, sermons that are made up mostly of personal anecdotes. Uh, however, well, maybe, maybe I would classify this more as a testimony. Uh, but Colossians is a book that, that means a lot to me. Um, it's, it's very meaningful. I started to really dig into Colossians at a point in my life when God was laying a lot of deep foundations of truth uh, in my heart. Uh, I was about halfway through college, and um, somehow the book of Colossians really came alive to me. I think it was a combination of what God was doing in my life and the truth that's in that book and the timing of God. And this really changed my life. This, this book changed my life. Uh, some of the passages in Colossians, they, t- they talk about who Jesus really is uh, and how all the fullness of God is in him. And uh, that really got a hold of me. I mean, I, started, I grew up Christian. I grew up in a, I was a pastor's kid and I grew up, Jesus saved me. Jesus uh, died for my sins on the cross. But to really understand who Jesus is and that really he is all there is of God, that God, in, God infused him with all of who he is. That is an amazing truth, and that really changed my life. Um, so in preparing for today, I came across my notes from the uh, second sermon I ever gave at LCF. And the date on it was, it was like almost exactly 11 years ago. It was like August something, 2007. So I was right in the middle of college. And uh, I think I had given maybe a handful of teachings elsewhere before. Um, but this was like the second teaching I'd ever given at, at church. Uh, at big church. And uh, for some reason, my biggest fear at that point was getting up to preach and being totally out of things to say within like five minutes. <laughs> and so when I would prepare, I would just like stockpile things that I could potentially talk about. So my text for the sermon that I gave, which was just, uh, which was about just Christian maturity and Christian growth. Um, here, here, here's my text for the sermon. It was the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians, Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 4, and there were like a few others, uh, maybe a few from the Old Testament mixed in there. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was paranoid of getting up and running out of things to say. Uh, and then uh, the, the beginning um, of my notes in the sermon, it says, uh, this might be short, uh, but, and, and then I just went on. So I was like prefacing, uh, this could be short. For some reason, that was my, my greatest fear. So I've come a long way. Um, those of you who, who tend to nod off toward the 50th, 55th minute of my sermons now. Uh, I still think it was only about 15 minutes long when I preached on the, the whole book of Colossians, the whole book of Ephesians. Um, but I say all this to, yes, to laugh at myself, um, but also to testify that I'm a walking example of how the truth that, that Paul is trying to communicate through this book really came to life in my life. Uh, what he is trying to explain here and describe is something that I've personally experienced. Um, and so, it really, I preached on it 11 years ago. It had really begun to work in my life before then. And it's been the same truth that has caused me uh, to grow at each step uh, since then. So I just want to testify to the lasting uh, goodness of this book, the truth in this book. Um, 
So here's, this is how I put it 11 years ago, which I would probably slightly edit uh, if I had to do it over. Uh, but this was the main point of that sermon. It's the main point, of, I think, of the book of Colossians. Uh, here it is. Your growth and maturity as a Christian is directly proportional to the extent to which you understand something that has already happened to you. Your growth and maturity as a Christian is directly proportional. I think I was into the, uh, the real logical phrasing at that point. Uh, it's directly proportional to the extent to which you understand something that has already happened to you. It's a completed work. So I still think that's true. And that's, that's uh, as we read through Colossians, as we cover um, the basic overview this morning, that's the truth uh, that, that God wants to speak to us this morning. <clears throat> so a little background. Uh, we, we always need to approach Paul with uh, some background in mind. Uh, again, just as a reminder, Paul, at the heart of every one of his letters, is the gospel of Jesus, uh, the Messiah. The truth of that. Jesus, the fulfillment of all of God's promises from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to the prophets, that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of that. And that's the gospel that he proclaims. Um, Every church and every letter has a different reason for being written. Okay, And so Colossians is written uh, to a church that he probably never went to in person, but he knew some people there, and he knew of it, certainly. And, um, you know, it doesn't have a counterpart in the book of Acts where you can go and see what happened at that church, like Ephesus or Corinth or um, even Philippi. But it was written, um, and, and so he, he spends a lot, a lot of time, the first chapter and a half or so, introducing himself and his message. Um, they had probably heard of Paul, and he had heard of them. He says so in the, in the book. But he introduces himself and kind of what, what he's all about. Um, one, one side note, though, is, and this is interesting, the, the letter was sent with, so Paul wrote this letter, and it was sent with Tychicus, who was a, he was kind of a gopher for Paul. I think he, he delivered to, uh, the letter to the Ephesians as well. But he delivered this letter uh, and, and Tychicus, this is in chapter 4 of Colossians, he was sent with Onesimus, who is the primary subject of the book of uh, Philemon. Ben's back there laughing because we studied Colossians once, and he called him Onesimus. <laughs> and then I said Onesimus, Twosimus, Redsimus, Bluesimus. <laughs> so I, we, can't, we can't ever read Onesimus without having that little jingle in our head. Uh, but Onesimus is the, the subject of the book of Philemon. So Onesimus was an escaped slave from Colossae. And uh, the letter, Paul sent this letter with Tychicus and Onesimus to the Colossians. And he also sent Onesimus with the letter of Philemon. So when we get there, that's, that's the context. So Colossians and Philemon go hand in hand. Uh, they were sent at the same time to the same place. Uh, Philemon is about... Um, uh, it's to Philemon, who was the owner of Onesimus. And he says, hey, Onesimus is a changed guy. I want to encourage you to, to receive him back. Even though he ran away from you and, and stole some stuff, I want you to receive him back as a brother. And he, and he mentions that in the book of Colossians at the end. Hey, receive this Onesimus guy back. He's one of you. Uh, and so that's, that's one thing that is going on. That is one uh, personal 
detail that Paul has with the, with the church at Colossae. Um, so beyond that, beyond that personal element, there is a, um, there's an obvious backdrop of cautions against false doctrine in this letter. Paul is addressing some uh, potentially damaging false teaching. Okay? And it's not as specific as it is in Galatians, where there is a specific situation, a specific set of people, these agitators, who are causing Gentile believers, pressuring them to Judaize, to look Jewish. Okay? That's not happening. And, and all we have, we don't really have any insight into what was going on in Colossae, uh, other than what Paul sort of cautions against here. And it's hard to piece it together. Sometimes it sounds a little bit like paganism, pagan mysticism. Uh, there were these mystery religions where uh, you would kind of commune with the spiritual reality and um, become one with the fullness. Uh, but then there's also some cautions against uh, Jewish legalism as well. And so there's, there's a couple things going on. And there, scholars have attempted to piece together what was the exact heresy that was happening that was, that was being taught. I don't know if it's important to nail down the exact false doctrine. Uh, because what he's saying is, whatever that false doctrine is, none of that will get you close to, close to God. None of that will bring you any closer to God than what you already have, which is the truth of the gospel. There's nothing to add to that. Whether it's Jewish legalism, whether it's mysticism, whether it's the worship of angels, whether, whether it's asceticism, you know, beating yourself... Um, whatever it is, the gospel does not need to be improved upon. And so that's his primary message, okay? Um, all right. So the basic structure of the letter uh, goes like this. The, uh, and for the first chapter, the first eight verses are a greeting and a prayer. And then he continues to pray for them, uh, Actually, he doesn't really continue to pray for them. He continues to tell them how he prays for them. <laughs> um, chapter 1, verse 9, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, are this extended introduction to Paul the Apostle and his ministry, which it would include the basics of his message. Okay? Within that is a significant chunk, and this is... Like Philippians 2, the, the, little, the Christ hymn that we talked about in Philippians 2, there's a section in, in Colossians chapter 1 that may have stood on its own as kind of a hymn to Christ. And it's uh, verses 15 through uh, 20 in chapter 1. But that's, that's as, he, may, he, he includes that as part of his introduction to himself and his message. Um, chapter 2, verse 6 through 4, 6 are really the, the body of the letter. And it's, appeal, it's an appeal to and an exhortation to maturity. Christian maturity. And then 4-7 through 18 are final greetings, where he does uh, interject that a bit about Onesimus and, and um, personal matters. Um, so I want to just... I want to read a few sections, kind of walk through the letter, read, the, read some significant sections, make some comments, and then focus on the two primary themes of maturity, and then not as a separate theme, but integrated into that, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. 
and then uh, talk about a little bit of application. Um, so let's, let's look at chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So he's not writing to... He, he's writing to people who, who have heard the gospel, who he addresses as saints and faithful brothers. So this is a, this is a body of believers that he's addressing. Okay? Um, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And I'll mention, you know, Paul says that a lot, grace and peace. Um, it should become clearer and clearer as we continue to go through Paul what he really means by that. Grace being the faithfulness of God in Jesus, which includes the forgiveness of sins, the freedom from the bondage of sin, and the power to live as Christ. That's all included in that word grace. And what that brings about then is peace between us and God and in the body of Christ and in the earth. Peace on earth. Grace and peace. Those are two very powerful words in Paul. So he says, we always thank God. And I want you to note, everywhere where thanksgiving is mentioned in this letter, it's, it's all over the place. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Um, a little detail here. Paul often lumps the three, uh, the three words faith, hope, and love together. And we'll see that when we get to the Thessalonians too. He kind of structures his letter around those three themes. Obviously, we remember in 1 Corinthians where he says, So these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. These are three crucial themes for Paul. We heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing. And he describes the gospel in like living terms. The gospel is not a set of words. The gospel is almost like a personal force. And it really is. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the message that is brought by the Holy Spirit to people who are willing to hear. It's growing and it's bearing fruit in the whole world, as it also does among you. Now, um, where would fruit take us in terms of thinking through the whole, the, the big picture story of God? Bearing fruit. Where does that take us? All the way back to Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. So he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and is multiplying and filling the earth. What God always wanted to happen is now, it's, it's happening. It's happening now. The new creation. Since you heard it and you understood the grace of God in truth. Okay? You understood the grace of God in truth. Grace. Grace is not just the ability to sit back and relax because God has taken care of everything. Grace is the agent of bringing the new creation into the earth through your life. So you heard it and you understood this grace. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is a dense little 
a couple verses here. So we are praying that you might be filled with the knowledge of all his will in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding are two very important Old Testament words. If you read through Proverbs, wisdom, you come to see, is the, uh, it's the quality of a human being who understands how to order the world, how to take dominion of the world according to the word of God. And in Proverbs 8, it says that wisdom was in the beginning with God. And Christ, we see, is wisdom. So he said, we want you to be filled with all spiritual wisdom. What does that wisdom lead to? You being able to live as the new creation. You being able to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. To know how, what, what the will of God is. To order your life according to the will of God. and To bring that order into all the areas of your life. And understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is all Genesis, Genesis language. To be filled with wisdom. To understand how to steward and take dominion over creation. To walk in a way that pleases God. God came down and he, wanted, he was walking with man in the garden as he stewarded creation. Okay? And so Paul is saying that in the gospel we, can, we are back there. We're back to that place where we can walk with God in a way that pleases Him, not in a way that is independent from Him, according to His will and that shapes the world in the way that He he desires. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being fruitful, multiplying, fill the earth, subdue it. But here's, here's here's the dynamic. Filled with knowledge and spiritual wisdom and understanding to do things, to walk, and as we walk, then to know God even more. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a cycle. Okay? You understand what pleases God so that you can walk in a way that pleases God so that you can know God. There's a certain element of knowing God that you can only know as you act in a way that pleases Him. You can understand something in your mind. But if you really understand in, in, in the real way, in the fully, when you fully know it and grasp it, it, be, it becomes your life. And then you, then you do the things that are pleasing to God. And when you do that, you understand God in a way that you never would otherwise. Does that make sense? And so that, that just keeps going and going. That's how we know God. Filled with the knowledge of His will... To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened, right? We need strength. Strengthened with power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So as we understand God's will and as we allow it to work its way into our lives, we start to know God even more. And that whole process requires his strength to endure and to be patient. Okay? With joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is Exodus language. He, he, he brought us out of bondage. And we're in a new kingdom. In whom we have redemption. Redemption. 
the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is one of the, is one of the chief markers of the new covenant. Okay? Forgiveness of sins was a, was a complicated thing under the old covenant. And God has, has shown forth that the people who he calls to himself, he is now able to forgive. Because of the cross, he is able to forgive sins and include people into the family. Uh, I'm going to come back and say something more about the Thanksgiving uh, here in a second. So then we get, this, um, we get this statement of who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the thing to know about this poem is that it's, it talks about creation and new creation. There's two sections here. He's the firstborn of all creation. And then further down it says he's the firstborn from the dead, which is the resurrection, which is the new covenant, the new creation. Jesus is preeminent in both of those things. He was there at the beginning. He's the source of all life in the first place. And he is the... Uh, he is the captain. The, the, he, he is the mediator of the new covenant, being the firstborn from the dead. So he's the image of the invisible God. Again, ex, er, again, Genesis. Created in the image of God. The one who most perfectly represents who God is, is, is Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay? That's creation. He is the creator God. And this is one of the, this is one of the distinguishing characteristics of the Old Testament proclamation. That there is one God, and he is the God who created heaven and earth. So nothing in that first section... Would any, any Jew, any Torah-believing Jew, disagree with? Well, yeah, that's who God is. Hero Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And he is worthy of all praise as the creator of heaven and earth. And that's what distinguished God from idolatry. He's not been, he hasn't been made by human hands. He made heaven and earth. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he was at the beginning, and all things were created through him, and he is the beginning. He's where we start from. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So at the beginning, God created everything with Jesus and through him. And here in the New Covenant, God has become a man. And as, as a man, he was filled with all the fullness of God. He's pleased to dwell. There's that, that pleased word. In, 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 this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So much in there about who Jesus is. If you just would meditate on that and memorize that and chew on it, it will change your life for the rest of your life. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has reconciled in his body of, of flesh by his death 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above all reproach before him. Now here's the key. Here's what he really wants to get at. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's the basics of my message, guys. It's Jesus. You know this. You know who he is. Now let me tell you a little bit about me, I, Paul. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In other words, Jesus Christ has become my pattern of life. And he didn't just go to the cross to reconcile you. He went to the cross so that we would understand the way that we were created to live. And the way that pleases God. And I now, I am participating in that. I'm suffering. I'm being afflicted. And he's not trying to puff himself up. He's saying, this is who Jesus is. And we get to participate with him. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'll come back to that. And here is is why Paul is writing. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let me tell you why I'm writing. I've been entrusted with a ministry, and it's to proclaim Jesus, not just as, a, as, as another option for spirituality, but as the fullness of God in the flesh, and as the hope of glory. As the hope of achieving the things that we were created to be. It's all in Jesus. And I toil and I struggle to present you mature in Christ. You've heard it. You believe it. You know the goodness of it. Now let me tell you. There is nothing else but that. And the more you wrap your mind around that, the more you're going to be looking like Jesus. Okay? I have a great struggle for you. And for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. There's so many places I want to go. But I, a, a letter has to suffice for now. I've heard that you, you've heard who Jesus is. I, really, I, I want to exhort you. I want to pour gas on that fire uh, that has been started among you. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you're talking to a place where there are different, different avenues and routes toward knowledge, toward wisdom, he's saying there's one path to enlightenment. <laughs> there's one path to nirvana, or whatever that is, whatever it was that they were doing. In Christ is all wisdom and knowledge. Nothing that you'll ever need to know will you know apart from Christ. None of it matters. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It's a lot of stuff that sounds good. 
but it's not Christ. Though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So there's not a crisis going on in Colossae. The only thing is he hasn't been there and he wants to make sure that he has had his say to encourage them and to strengthen them to, to, to pursue the gospel that they've received. All right, so then the bulk of the letter has to do with this pursuit of maturity, growth. Okay, and we, we already saw in those, you, you grow in maturity by understanding what Jesus has done, beginning to walk in obedience and faith, and then as, as a result of obedience, knowing him even more. And you come back to that place of understanding. It's like that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You can't know him in the fellowship of his sufferings if you're not in some way suffering with him. You can't know him in the power of his resurrection if you haven't died to something and watched him raise you back to life. Okay, there are things about God that you can only know by understanding and having your mind renewed. And there are things about God that you can only understand by walking with him and doing those things and experiencing that grace. So that's what he's saying. And this is the, if you want to boil it down to a couple verses, here it is. As you received Christ the Lord, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up. Rooted and built up. Paul loves to mix metaphors. Here's a tree with roots that's being built like a building. (laughs) What are you saying? Roots, meaning once a tree has roots, it's not going to go anywhere else. There's not going to be any other system of nourishment that it happens. But it's not a full tree. So you're rooted. You're not going anywhere. There's nothing needs to be added to you. There there aren't any additional root systems or anything else. You're there. You've, You've heard the gospel. Now be built up and grow in that knowledge. And that's a never ending process. Okay? It's like in Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the way of uh, the sinners, standeth, whatever. <laughs> yes. Uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night, and he shall be like a tree. In his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water. And he will be there. And then he just grows. And he experiences growth. And the leaves come forth. And then it's just a continual process. So he's saying, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith. Just as you were taught. Here we go again. Abounding in thanksgiving. And so he says, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Don't believe any shiny system of religion no matter what it promises you. You have everything you need. And if you're going to pursue anything, pursue that thing that Christ has already done in you. Wrap your mind around it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Pursue it. Why? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is all of God that you will ever hope to, to, to have. He's the head of all rule and authority. In him you also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You don't need to, you don't need to do this to your flesh to be more godly. 
You have everything you need. All of the deity you will ever need and all of the covenant belonging that you will ever need. All of the physical markings you will ever need to have. You have those in Christ. You belong fully. You've received fully. So, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. This is verse 16. And questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. These things were all pointing to Christ. The reality is here. The substance belongs to Christ. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And here's, here's his final word on, on anything besides the pure gospel that we would think that we would need to rely on or pursue. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. You think you'll be able to walk in a manner that pleases God by doing these things. It looks like you'll be able to bring the purposes of God to pass better if you rely on these things. Appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But here's the irony. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In pursuing those things, what are you doing? You are taking of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. You're deciding how you're going to accomplish God's purposes on your own. And that itself, even if you're beating your body while you're doing that, you are indulging your flesh. It doesn't matter how disciplined you are. If you're doing it apart from God, it's of no value. If you're not doing it out of a response to the gospel and the truth of Jesus in you, it's not going to do anything. The world is not going to know who God is any better through your life if you do these things. So now we just get a great chapter of scripture, which I think, again, is worth memorizing. Um, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now he's not saying... Yeah, don't care about living, don't care about life in the world. The exact opposite. He's saying, if you care about what you do, if you want to make a difference in the world, you've got to go outside the world and bring something back in that can actually transform the world. Nothing from within the world is going to bring the kingdom into the world. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, put to death what is earthly in you. It doesn't mean... Now, this is in stark contrast to the severity to the body and the asceticism that he's talking about. Put to death... What, according to the word of God, is contrary to the gospel. And put on what, according to the word of God, not what you decided to make up, not what some system of philosophy would tell you, but what, according to the word of God, summed up in Jesus, put to death anything that's not of Jesus in you, and put on everything that is Jesus. 
And that is how you walk in a manner worthy of God. So he says, put to death what is earthly in you. You put it all away. Um, he says, uh, sexual immorality, pure, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. And he adds this crucial line for us, which is idolatry. The great enemy of the people of God, all through scripture, is idolatry. This is the great enemy. This is what caused the fall. Right? Listening to the voice of the creature rather than the creator. Obeying something from within the world system, not from the designer of the world. So if you're listening to sexual immorality, impurity, if you're, if you're bowing your knee to these things, if you're obeying these things, you are committing idolatry. So put, put all that to death. Uh, put off the old self. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We're here in, in, in anthropology 101 is what, Christ, is what Paul is talking about. Who, what is man? What are you designed to be? You will find out everything you need to know by meditating on Jesus. He is all there is to see of God. And he is all there, need, he is, all there is that you need to know about being human. In him are both. You want to reach God? Go to Jesus. You want to know who you are? Look at Jesus. There's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. Christ is all and in all. You can't say it any more uh, comprehensively than that. Put on, then, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And here's where we get into how this really comes to bear on our life together. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body. And be thankful. Um, I wish I had like a, a thankful, a Thanksgiving counter up here. Um, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, and every, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He talks about households. All right, let's get down to business. You wake up in the morning. You are a wife. You are a husband. You are a child. You are a parent. You are an employer. You are an employee. All of this stuff that we've been talking about has something to say to you about how to be human, how to conduct yourselves in these relationships. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So much wisdom. I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about any, any one of these. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but with sincerity of hearts? What if we all brought that attitude to our jobs? What if we went to work and we clocked in and we imagined that Jesus was the name on our paycheck and not University of Kentucky or, or whatever? And that our performance evaluation was every night as we got home and we talked through the day with, with the Lord and he examined the attitudes of our hearts? Do we really work for the Lord or do we work for men? Do we do a good job when it benefits us? When it might get us a raise? When we feel like it? Or do we honestly serve the Lord? You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Don't work for a paycheck. Do not work for a paycheck. Work for the inheritance of the saints in light. Which is a far greater reward and a far more lasting one. And your boss in that regard is Jesus. Um, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. None of you, no matter how powerful you are, are, are without a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Ding! At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Some great practical wisdom here, and it truly is biblical wisdom, because it tells us how to live our lives in very practical ways according to the will of God, which is true wisdom. Which is what God has always wanted. All right, and then the, the final greetings, and I've already talked about Onesimus and his relationship there. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to uh, Philemon, uh, which I think we're going to just we'll do Timothy, the Timothys, Titus, and Philemon all together as sort of pastoral epistles. Um, all right, so the primary themes I've mentioned. I just want to say a few more things about them: maturity, and here's kind of the summary here. Maturity. Maturity comes through posturing ourselves toward God in a way that allows the truth of his gospel to transform our minds. So we, we, we posture ourselves before God. We take the right attitude toward him. We pursue him in the right way. In a way that allows the truth of his gospel to transform our minds and drive us to action. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me say that in several more words than Christ in you, the hope of blood. Being filled with Christ, who himself is the fullness of God, is the only way that we can be who we were created to be. And if we understand who Jesus really is, we will understand that this is a message of great hope. And a cause for great thanksgiving and joy. Since he is able to forgive our sins, free us from bondage, empower us to live as the new humanity, and bring his glory, bring glory to him in all aspects of our lives. From spiritual to emotional, physical, bodily, and then outward into our homes and communities. That's what it means. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And that's what maturity is. When we pursue the truth of the gospel that has come to us. And we align our lives with it. 
the glory of God comes forth into the earth. Uh, Thanksgiving, I think this is crucial to the whole process. Because I I talked about the posture, (laughs) posturing yourself toward the truth. You will know, so there's two things about Thanksgiving. It's an indicator that your posture is correct. If you have a thankful heart, you know you're seeking God in the right way. You know, you know you're on the right path if you find yourself abounding in thanksgiving as you contemplate God. Because what, what does that mean? You, you understand the depth of his love. You understand the unfathomable grace that has been extended to you. Which naturally, you I mean you were created to thank God for that. When you realize that. The other thing though is that thanksgiving is, is, is unique. It's, a, it's an indicator that you're on the right path. But it's also a means to the right path. It's, a, it's an adjuster. If you, if you find yourself dry, or you find yourself kind of unable to, like, oh, yeah, the, I, I know the gospel, I know the truth, but it's just not, like, I wake up in the morning, it's just not real to me. You need to find a heart of thanksgiving. And as we read in the beginning, enter his gates. Thanksgiving in your heart. You're probably outside the gates. If you find it hard to, to relate to this truth, if it doesn't really do anything for you, you need to start to count the reasons to be thankful to God. And that's really what Paul is praying for the church. He says, I want to pray that you would be able to thank God. Because what does that say? It means that you really do have an understanding of the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would abound in thanksgiving. Because that'll tell me that you know what's really happened. Right? We teach our kids to say thanks. We teach our kids to write a thank you note when you receive a gift. That lesson never hit home with me. I, I'm the horrible, worst person to ever write a... I never write thank you notes. Um, why? Because it's an expression, it's an acknowledgement. This is a good thing that has happened to me. And it's worthy of, of expression of thanks. Um, okay, so thanksgiving is important. It tells you that your attitude is right, but it also can lead you to the presence of God and toward the right attitude. Okay? All right, so here's some things, I, I, I think some self-examination questions. Um, coming out of this book... Uh, and, and hearing Paul's exhortations, and even as we approach the, uh, the table this morning, some things to, to consider. Uh, how do we pray? In our prayer, do we, is, it, is it permeated with thanksgiving? Or are we kind of needy? Or self-absorbed? I mean, all, when, we, when we begin to pray, when we get in the presence of God and to contemplate who He is, more than anything, we should be thankful. I mean, yes, there's needs, and yes, we cry out to God, and we present our requests to Him. That's all good. Um, but thankfulness is like the ABCs of prayer. How do you interact with the Word? Paul talks about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
Is that, is that the attitude that you carry into your study of Scripture, your daily time in the Word? Is it, I want this to be on fire in my heart so that it can overflow and so that I can have someone to, something to share with someone? Or is it drudgery? Again, I think the first place to start would be consider what a gift that his word is to us and thank him for that. And maybe that will nudge you in the right, right direction, the right attitude toward the word. Uh, a couple more things. And these, these are, you know, this isn't like we can go away and just apply all these things. These are just some questions I think that this book should prompt, it prompts in my life and should prompt in, in, in our lives as well. Um, what was the last thing you learned about God and understood about God by doing something in obedience to his word? What was the last thing you learned about God that you learned by being obedient to something that you saw in his word? So like maybe you read something about forgiving someone. You said, you know, I see that the word of God says that. I'm going to do that. And then as you forgive you experience something of God that you never would have known otherwise. Or humility, or whatever it is. Submission to your husband. Self-sacrifice for your wife. Um, What was the last thing that you put to death in you (laughs) out of obedience to the word? Is it a sexual impurity? A desire for stuff? An attitude? That was clearly contrary to the glory of the gospel. Have you, did you put that to death? This is how we come to know God. What was the last thing you put on in faith? Kindness, humility, forgiveness. Because it's a very clear list of things to put to death, to put off. A very clear list of things to put on. And again, these aren't rules. These aren't like additions to the gospel, they are expressions of our understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, Do you toil in prayer for a person or for people that they would be mature in Christ? Who is that? Who are those people that you toil for in prayer that they would be presented mature in Christ? And in that toil, do you struggle with his energy? And not just your own anxiety or fondness or sentimentality or whatever. Not just human effort. I mean, it doesn't take a Christian to really worry for your kids. To really worry about your kids' salvation. But do you toil with, the, with his energy? Paul says that I... He says this... For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And I think that's a toil that will actually be coupled with the power of God and produce something. Do you find yourself trying to supplement the simple purity of the gospel of Christ in you? That everything you need is in Christ and it's in you. Uh, and finally, are your, are your relationships, the way that you conduct yourself in your relationships, is that submitted to the Word of God? 
You know the role that you're supposed to play in someone's life, and you, you do that, and you are obedient to that out of uh, obedience to God. And so all those areas are, you know, obviously, each one of those, I can think of ways to, that I need God to help me grow. But that's the point. Maturity. Maturity is a lifelong process. And Paul is writing to saints and faithful people. I would say that the people in this room are saints and faithful people. Faithful brothers and sisters. But he says, don't ever stop pressing on to to understand the truth of what has come to you. The truth of Christ in you. Uh, There is so much glory that he can get from your life if you allow that truth to transform you. If you seek after it, if you meditate on it, if you pursue it with all that's in you, and then out of that, put yourself out there in obedience. Do what the Word of God says and watch His grace come in and empower that and give you endurance and give you patience in that walk. Um, so I want to I point us in that direction and also point out the fact that... Uh, the word for Eucharist is, is the word of uh, thanksgiving. And we don't call this Eucharist around here, uh, but uh, in a lot of places, this is Eucharist. This is the thanksgiving. This is what we have to thank God for, his broken body and his poured out blood. And so as we come, let's, let's first of all be thankful as we remember the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, that he has made us one with himself. But also, let us receive... So, we receive a grace when we come together to the table. Um, You know, different denominations think different stuff about what actually happens at communion. I believe it's a means of grace. That is, as, as it's an expression of our dependence on God, He sees that and He honors it and He says, I give you my grace to be the people that I created you to be. Because of your faith in Jesus and your, your, your obedience partake of his body and blood he gives us grace and so we can be bold let's thank God for what he's done thank God for his sacrifice let our hearts be undone by that absolutely but let's also receive the provision and the grace that he's extended to us and as we receive it resolve in the spirit in his power in his energy to do something this week that we know we need to do to obey something in the word of God that, that he has his finger on. He said, you need to adjust that. You need to put on humility toward this person in this area. You need to put to death this desire. You need to fast on Wednesday or whatever it is. Let's do this thing. Let's do it in, in, in obedience to God. Amen? So you want to come and just play? And we can spend some time in reflection and allow the Holy Spirit to be here, uh, to, to draw our hearts to Him. And then come with, with great thanksgiving and great remembrance of what He's done for us.